a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back to another episode in our podcast series about China. Nathan Romus with you, as well as our co-host for this series, Calvin Krusty, senior partner and consultant with the Critical Risk team. So welcome, Calvin. Our discussions continue with several experts regarding issues such as foreign influence, organized crime, money laundering, and hybrid warfare, just to name a few. Due to the growing influence on our nation from both outside actors and within, Calvin and I have put together this series to explore and better understand these issues. And before I introduce our guest, I'd like to clarify that when referencing China, we're talking about the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, and their various means of influence and coercion. This is distinct from the good people of China, the majority of whom have contributed to the advancement and interests of Canada and other nations. And to discuss these matters, we have Sam Cooper with us. Sam is an award-winning Canadian investigative journalist who has presented his findings to law enforcement agencies, legal and financial professionals, and academics internationally. Cooper graduated with a degree in history, philosophy, and English from the University of Toronto, and a certificate in journalism from Langara College, where he was awarded the Jack Webster Prize for Outstanding Student Journalist. So welcome, Sam. Thank you both very much. Um, So maybe we'll kind of get into your history to start so people kind of know you. So can you kind of tell us about yourself, where you come from, and what got you into uh, journalism? So I grew up uh, in the greater Toronto area, and I eventually went to University of Toronto, where my interests were... uh, English and philosophy and history, which are good training for journalism. But at the time, I was thinking about law school. I I dropped that plan. And after university, I was getting more interested in writing and uh, and journalism. I went to Japan first. So that was really a a very interesting time and and introduction to East Asian culture. I eventually uh, returned to Canada, settling in Vancouver for journalism school. And then at that point, uh, when I jumped into uh, community news first and eventually up to the province and the sun, my area of focus, I just found I was immersed like everyone in Vancouver in what the heck is going on with the housing market there and all these supercars racing around town. Uh, It was just the, the levels of wealth you could not ignore. And yet, you know, I didn't in, in my professional circles, uh, I didn't see too many people that could, um, you know, afford uh, the housing market. So, you know, to, to jump to the chase there, I, I, I jumped in to discovering how funds from offshore really were in very complex ways, making their way into Vancouver's housing market. And, uh, and that led me to uh, Hong Kong, Macau and mainland China, and eventually discovering underground banking. So in a nutshell, that, that's not the only thing by far I've reported on. I've reported on lots of social issues, uh, lots of politics, but it, it certainly has become an area of focus, sort of looking at uh, corruption, political influence, mainly from uh, 
I would say my, my interests are mostly regimes that are, are very hostile to Canada and how uh, Canada seems to not have good defenses or even understanding for the, for the most part into how other countries are uh, leveraging a lot of our institutions against us. So that in a nutshell is what I'm up to. Well, and you know what, uh, the title of your, your book, uh, Willful Blindness, I thought it was very appropriate, especially being in the industry that, uh, or the, the job profession that I'm in. Um, do you think, is from what you've seen and the, the investigating that you've done, would you say that willful blindness is kind of one of our greatest failures? Or um, are we just really susceptible, you know, maybe weak to temptations of money and different vices? Because from my experience, I would say willful blindness probably plays the biggest part. You see a lot of people don't act on things that they should. Either things are just too difficult or they think, uh, I, I don't think that'll be an, uh, have an effect on me or somebody that I, I, I care about. So what have you kind of seen throughout um, you know, your time in journalism? Yeah, that's a great, that that kind of taps into my philosophical course training because we can apply willful blindness to, to, as you say, to all areas of our of our lives. But when we're talking about, a, you know, a provincial and national governments, my focus was, I, I took the, the quote, willful blindness directly from uh, a source that uh, for his own reasons, he was a BC Lottery Corporation uh, investigator in anti-money laundering and there were very complex, uh, let's just call them rationalizations and arguments for why the funds that I started to look at, both in real estate and then after real estate, casinos and underground banking coming into BC, there was just across the board at the political level, at the business leader level, a real, uh, uh, quote, willful, uh, accusations of willful blindness to where this money was coming from. and so. Um, I'll just say that that person's name is uh, Ross Alderson. He was a former uh, officer in Australia and, and came over to Canada, has now returned uh, to Australia. I'm just going to say essentially chased out of Canada as a whistleblower who uh, in his complex work environment tried to do something to, to sound the alarm. But yeah, willful blindness. My, my, course of discovery has been, it started with the casinos and, and a lot of people, and maybe uh, Calvin will chime in, but some, I believe a lot of people in the RCMP who understood through their looking at transnational drug trafficking, money laundering networks, that there was no denying that just a huge amount of the revenue coming into BC government casinos was attributed to mainland China and to known drug trafficking targets that had been known drug trafficking targets for years in British Columbia. And yet the government was allegedly, and I'm saying, I'm asserting, willfully blind to uh, the evidence that police knew of. And so that, I, I believe, you know, I won't ramble forever on this, on this question, but I, my, my uh, you know, frame of analysis is that not only in BC casinos, but in uh, political funding and uh, networks in Canada, uh, in banking, in uh, real estate development, that same willful blindness to funds uh, flowing in from uh, not just China, but of course, uh, Russia, Iran, uh, 
Saudi Arabia, other areas into Canada's economy. For some reason, you know, all all industrial nations have this problem. Mm-hmm. But I and others, and I think Calvin, do believe that Canada has a system in place that that is very permissive of these funds. And you have to start, the investigator's mind has to start asking, these are smart people at the top of Canada's government. So why do these loopholes still exist? Is it willful blindness? Yeah. And Calvin, you want to go on that? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just say that my experience uh, with, uh, you know, from Sam's comments relative to a general sense of when the issues are too complex or if they touch upon, say, some conflicting interest, i.e. in this particular case, the revenue generation to uh, a uh, <clears throat> BC government, there seems to be, a, I'd almost call it a, a, a cultural uh, sense. I, I wish I wouldn't say that, but I, I think Canada suffers from a cultural sense of uh, a little bit of risk aversion, not wanting to get into the conflict of it, but also uh, maybe uh, accepting a high degree of naivety and displacement of responsibility to others rather than uh, assuming, you know, this is our country, let's do something about it, which is my experience uh, with other countries seem a little more uh, take ownership and accountability, you know, in terms of the, not only just the police, but the public generally speaking. And I think, you know, what Sam's describing, um, you know, I found in sadly the, uh, some elements of the police, but on the flip side of it, there was others that were enraged by it, but there was also a degree, uh, particularly at the political levels of, uh, either dismissal. Mm-hmm. Uh, of it or non-acceptance of it because it was almost um, something that seemed a little surreal and uh, there was some cognitive dissonance uh, things going how could in our beautiful country uh, in our beautiful city of Vancouver could we be seeing you know hundreds of millions of dollars funneling through government institutions from profits of fentanyl which is killing our youth, cementally vulnerable, um, generated by triads and other transnational organized crime networks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like it's uh, it's almost too difficult to presume. And I think then you add the Ottawa factor in there, which they've got beautiful, you know, Rideau uh, Canal for skating and uh, beautiful uh, walks along the uh, canal in the summertime. It's I, I, I think it's just almost imaginable for the decision makers in Canada to understand that there's these real threats uh, out here. So I, I agree with uh, Sam and I would, Sam, I ask you this question. <clears throat> I know you have some uh, really unique relationships, uh, not only nationally, but internationally with police and others uh, and that. And I just wondered if you can kind of comment in terms of your work relative to some of those other interactions you've had with some pretty impressive um security intelligence and police officers in terms of a comparative analysis you know if this is something unique to vancouver if it's unique to canada or if you're if if it's a broader issue than say just the the uh willful blindness of uh government and security forces uh in the vancouver area if it's broader than that 
Yeah, I would agree with you um, very much. You know, I think there's some some very smart and very savvy people in Canada that know exactly what's going on. And uh, unfortunately, month by month and year by year, I start to get my eyes on documents that would point to powerful people and say not only do they know what's going on, but unfortunately, they could be co-opted, compromised, or corrupted. I'll add another C, and this could be coercive to, to Canada's democracy, right? And so, but having said that, that is not everyone. There, There is, I'm afraid, a, a lot of naivety I, I've expressed and even, you know, used in my narrative in my book that, you know, we grew up as Canadians just believing that we're such a solid and do-gooding country, uh, but that that reputation unfortunately i don't believe is is held in other of our you know allies uh, the capitals you know in washington canberra uh, or london anymore what you know is canada starting to slip or on the verge of being not a respected or even you know uh, a real member of the five eyes you know that's a real danger i'm not you know just guessing at that i'm i'm hearing from people in the intelligence communities and you know the uh, the lack of what you said about uh, pushing away sort of um, accountability. Sure, look, we if we really want to look at deep into our our Canadian DNA as a country and say do we rely too much on our on our powerful uh, allies that they go out and, and and do some good work and also do some some uh, some uh, tough work in the world and and take blowback because of it and do we kind of shy away from that and yet. Um, you know, reap the benefits of those partnerships. The more and more I, I look at this from a geopolitical level and, and talk to people like you and the people you mentioned in, in other capitals, yes, they, they see it that way. And I think we need to start seeing that way. And that applies, you know, I'm not an expert on, on military uh, at this point, but it, it applies to a lot of things in Canada. I do think that, again, you know, that naivety or the the willful sort of focusing on our um, our laurels of the past, or or just our conception of ourselves. Now I feel like I'm getting back into philosophy, Cap. But I agree with you, Cap. Would um, you know, and kind of on that point, this is someone I was going to bring up more in like a current event situation, but um, I'll get to it now. With the U.S. kind of getting in um, some hot water with allies, when like Edward Snowden uh, showed that the U.S. is spying even on their friends. Um, if we're considered a weak link in the five eyes or in ge- geopolitics in general, would it not kind of serve to, um, you know, serve maybe a greater purpose that the U S is looking into us because maybe we are a weak link, uh, as Canada, when it comes to intelligence or government, um, maybe they need to kind of do these things to protect themselves, but also, I mean, if we're relying on them and they got to protect us to some degree, can we really get mad at them for such a thing? And maybe it's just me being a giant nerd, but I think uh, it's kind of like Batman when he's spying on all the other superheroes and then they all get mad at him and he's like, but you're, you, you, none of you know what's going on. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, with, with that great power, there's great responsibility. And um, mm. I mean, just to zero in on the, the, the factors, like, let's look at what's happening in the Arctic. And at some point, you know, if Canada doesn't uh, pay more attention both to what China and Russia are attempting to do up there, you know, in, in, 
in in multiple frames and you know beef up our security and intelligence capacities and and you know our military and really economy then what's what's going to happen in a way we we do uh you know lose some sovereignty to good allies who are who are just saying okay we're going to have to shoulder that and you know okay canada can you can you up what you're doing or are you just going to sit there like some of the let's just say you know some of the elites that that are always looking at uh down their noses at what the US does in the world and i'm not saying that they don't get into some trouble and and do some very you know some tough things but I, I, it's, I'm agreeing with what you said. It's like, can we mm-hmm. get mad at them for getting into hot water when we won't even go near the hot water? Yeah. Um, so we're, I want to go a bit back to your book here because uh, a lot of the stuff in there I found relates to the ground level uh, of work. So police on front lines, what they might be able to look for and just how all of this is interconnected, right from uh, a person using drugs right on the street all the way up through the highest levels of um, the triads and the CCP. And you do this a few times in your book where you kind of uh, flesh out a whole story and then you explain, well, hey, this is how this scheme works. Can you kind of walk us through maybe just a version of how drugs on the street are ultimately tied back um, through the drug dealer to funneling money to a casino, which is then washed further on. Can you kind of explain uh, uh, one of those processes that you, you mentioned in your book? Yeah, you know, this is uh, this can become a fascination and obsession for, for people that, that study this and, you know, analysts. And so sometimes I'll explain and keep it simple and some I'll, I'll go, go off on a tangent, but a, a simple flow is we need to understand, you know, the great driver in, in BC's economy for dirty money is... Uh, the the factor that mainland China has a uh, a capital export bar as a communist country of about fifty thousand US per year on the vast majority of its citizens and so their great wealth has been created in China in the past decades as it interfaced with global economies and so uh, for for corrupt reasons and also for strategic reasons there's many actors in China that that use underground or criminal methods to export their money into other economies. And Vancouver has been, you know, the focus, you know, a disproportionate, incredible focus of a lot of those funds. Uh, You know, we're talking about uh, estimates are over a trillion, you know, in the past decades, uh, escaping China underground. And so, okay, we need to understand the Macau casino model. Macau, just off the, the coast of mainland China, is, is, you know, a gambling legal zone. You cannot gamble in China. And so these uh, either criminal or corrupt officials who, uh, as I've written, in some cases are, are one and the same, um, can run money out of China through these uh, triad junkets, which are really just, you know, uh, criminal businesses with sometimes legal faces where you make an arrangement to go to Macau and uh, and take out a loan from a gangster to gamble at the casino and then you cash out and you've got your money out of China uh, in you know in a clever way. So how does that relate to Vancouver? That model which which ties directly into Hong Kong uh, business networks at a high level as well was exported you know whole hog completely a complete copy into Vancouver 
mainly through uh, diaspora networks who were, um, you know, uh, setting up underground banks and triad, uh, you know, quasi junket operations in Vancouver and offering the same service. So how does that relate to heroin or, or fentanyl or cocaine? Well, let's take fentanyl, as we know that most of the precursors are produced in factories in China. So we can have, let's just say, a, a transnational drug dealer, a boss, or, or a, a high-level official, or just an average business person who's, who's involved in those networks, comes to Vancouver, takes out uh, a loan from a, a fentanyl trafficker who's dealing you know, uh, fentanyl pills that are ultimately uh, sourced from those chemicals uh, in mainland China. Uh, the fentanyl trafficker is also an underground banker and loan shark, or his friends are. He lends out the money to that official or that uh, drug boss or, or, or business person who has traveled into Vancouver to gamble in the casinos. And then that person, uh, again, they've got money out of China. How do they do it? By uh, prime, uh, It's simply the proceeds of fentanyl sales ultimately uh, derived from China that are loaned to that person. And he gambles and uh, win or lose, he's going to win sometimes, lose sometimes. But uh, he will uh, repay that drug cash loan. Again, warehouses of drug cash in Vancouver, as you guys know. Uh, and he will repay that drug cash loan with his own funds uh, in a bank account in China that zip right into a, a drug trafficker's bank account. Uh, there's probably, let's, let's just say there's bankers everywhere that are turning a blind eye to this. Mm -hmm. And then those funds in the drug trafficker's account goes back to the fentanyl factory, produces more uh, precursors, which are shipped to Vancouver, and the cycle continues. So I'll stop there. It gets a lot more complex where we've got like uh, car, uh, car imports and exports and, uh, you know, car warehouses and shipping containers in Vancouver, which can be tied also to fentanyl precursors and, and sort of arbitrage of cars uh, from North America shipped over to China. But that maybe that's the next book. You can see that, you know, it, it can be, you know, it, it, it gets very complex, but the general transaction flow of uh, the economy in China feeding into uh, Canada and, and illegal proceeds going back there. That's it. Well, I think your next book, um, maybe you should come to Edmonton and write about some of the people here. Let's uh, start something. Um, we actually did, there was an investigation two years ago, maybe it was now, but they had people um, stealing high-end cars, putting them on uh, into uh, trains and they were getting shipped out somewhere presumably they're ultimately end up overseas. So that is a huge business. Um, our casinos aren't the greatest here. They're not like big to do's, but, uh, I imagine there's some stuff going on in them too. So, uh, Calvin, you want to go ahead? Well, I was just going to say, I think if we went to the open source, uh, area. You would see that there's the, uh, periodic, uh, cars, uh, driving from Calgary, Edmonton, uh, back to Vancouver with, uh, suitcases of money uh, periodically on open source. Mm -hmm. So you'd be able to, uh, to, uh, to see that. Um, Sam, I, I, I was going to uh, ask, um, you, you, you deal with uh, a lot of security and intelligence folks in this uh, space. And I, <clears throat> I just wonder 
what the general sentiment is in terms of the people that you're talking to. I mean, obviously, the insight <clears throat> that some of them have is fairly significant. Um, and I just wonder what what's the general level of uh, concern they have for what's taking place, you know, both on the street and the higher uh, level. Uh, you know, when you're talking to people from the intelligence world, uh, policing world, and other uh, areas. That's a great question. Uh, I'll focus on the intelligence. You know, I think I started uh, more with uh, casino investigators and, and police. And because the file is international, I, I got into the, the intelligence uh, implications. And so my sense from intelligence is they had, had read my book and, uh, and this was very influential, uh, even, you know, even within CSIS, some of the findings and just the concrete you know, uh, dot connecting and, and the conclusions and, and the assessments. And so in some ways, I believe that, you know, we know the history that, that CSIS was going down the road of making these connections where the, the transnational, uh, crime networks are seen as national security threats with, with direct connections to, uh, the Chinese communist party. And of course we know, uh, that, you know, it's the exact same sort of model employed by Russia and Iran where intelligence agencies and, and organized crime actors and officials are often, you know, the very same networks. And they're used strategically, uh, it's called strategic corruption, in ways to get money, move money around the world to fulfill, at, at the end of the day, the objectives of the state. Um, and so my sense is that the reason I've been getting some extremely sensitive intelligence that, that's starting to rock the boat politically in Canada is that, again, um, Canadian intelligence, uh, people are fearful that we, I, I, can't, I can't get away from this point. Again, people are fearful that the five eyes is not a guarantee. Canada could be facing such threats from countries, including China and, uh, and Russia, to our political system that we're losing the trust of our allies. And so... That is, it's all about national security. And that's why people um, would take, you know, uh, the risks to, to provide information to a reporter that they believe has really studied this and for the most part is really getting it and is making their own findings similar to what, you know, people in intelligence and policing world, the, the investigative methods they use. So my point is I'm getting information and, and vetting it very carefully through journalistic methods to inform Canadians, and that informs the political discourse and debate. And I think that's why, uh, let's just circle back to Ross Alderson, who was in financial intelligence. He himself said a number of times, you know, I, I went to you because of what you were what you were pointing to. I knew it was true. And also you, you were putting together uh, things that taught, taught me something as well. So... Yeah, that's Canada's perspective. And I can add that increasingly I'm hearing from people in Washington that, again, are following the reporting here. And sort of the general takeaway is, wow, um, this is, we knew it was bad. Some of us know it's worse than you're onto yet. Others, you're, you're showing us something. But why is Canada in this position of not doing anything with these threats where Australia, a very, you know, similar country in some ways has done so much and been a leader in countering these threats. So that's the perspectives from outside Canada in intelligence and enforcement that I'm hearing. Yeah. And, and, and worth mentioning, uh, uh, 
Sam, I think that you and I actually did a uh, talk at the Pentagon uh, at that. I mean, this is how serious it is. It is it kind of whispering conversations uh, over uh, uh, cappuccinos or um, uh, a scotch? It's actually formal presentations from Canadians in Washington talking about the failures um, of policing, really, in many regards uh in terms of not doing this and when i say that you know it sounds very high level but when we take a look at it we're talking really about um you know the deaths of thousands of uh mentally vulnerable kids through fentanyl uh the indigenous communities uh and and others and people are paying attention to it in the u.s and other places where we seem to kind of be sweeping it under the carpet and i think it's fair to say um i think there's like a a sense from our partners at times that our leadership culture and i keep going back to culture rather than pointing fingers at people that we kind of have like a you know british chamberlain type mentality in terms of leadership you know from the pre world war 2 you know dealing with threats and issues where uh you know really nice soft fuzzy approach and when really a, a Churchill type mentality of accepting the fact that we're kind of in a battle space right now and we need to be a little more robust, uh, forward thinking and uh, risk adverse uh, in terms of uh, leadership, both at the political level and I think at the security and intelligence and policing level. And really the, the general culture of our leadership is Chamberlain, not Churchill at this time. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I asked this uh, question on the heels of that uh, one is the, the connectivity that you've seen, and you've probably got just as good as most uh, policing and intelligence one because of the work that you've done and some of the people that you're talking about, the interconnectivity between fentanyl, fentanyl deaths, and, um, and the uh, CCP, can you, can you describe your analysis and thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, that that's a great question, and I've uh, I'm asked it a lot because in the book, you know, I I quoted a very important source for my investigations, uh, that a source that helped me understand how a, a a People's Liberation Army veteran in a compound located in in British Columbia appeared to have you know Chapel Guzman type wealth in BC, uh, you know, and. and what kind of business activity was feeding that wealth? You know, this person was a central, powerful, <laughs> prominent, feared figure in, in communities across Canada, directly related to the, uh, the casino investigations in Vancouver. There were lots of indications of political connectivity, uh, you know, that could go into Beijing networks. And so what, what was this person doing here? So. This source that, that helped me understand that person first kind of made the comment that the fentanyl coming into BC, this is like the reverse opium war. So the, the idea being that, as we know, you know, British colonialism made some really bad, bad and choices that benefited them and, and flooded southern China with, with opium and lots of people were profiting, lots of corruption. But eventually, uh, you know, China moved against that. And some people in police and intelligence believe that not only is there an element of 
well, now we're wearing the pith helmets uh, in Beijing and we're free to, to mix legitimate uh, global trade with, with drug, uh, you know, precursor shipments and, and profit in, in many ways and, and not cut off that supply when the U.S. is asking us to do something. So not only is there kind of it's our turn now, uh, but could there be the, the complicity and even the, the connectedness that powerful Chinese Communist Party officials are known to give pro- protection to transnational drug traffickers, are known to task transnational gangsters to interfere in other societies, and I understand are known to, to even direct uh, and handle powerful gangsters working abroad. So I believe that the case is proven that the Chinese Communist Party is complicit in those uh, international drug trafficking activities involving fentanyl proceeds. And uh, are, do I have the document that uh, certain officials are directing loads into Vancouver or uh, Sinaloa or other areas? I don't have that, but I can say again that certainly I've almost every in the know police and intelligence official who, who understands the CCP file and the fentanyl file says not only are they complicit, they they want this they want this trade to be occurring around the world. That's the best way I can put it. And the and, and the, our our neighbors uh, to the south uh, and some of uh, which we view and monitor uh, both of us. Um, former senior executives from DA and others are very uh, vocal uh, about this uh, fact and uh, have extreme concerns about it. And uh, I, again, I just go back uh, as a Canadian, I'm somewhat perplexed based on my experience um, that there seems to be uh, kind of a dismissal of it. And on that dismissal thing, I one last question I'd like to uh, make sure that uh, gets uh, covered <clears throat> is a lot of these issues were uh, uncovered by your writings and uh, your work. Um, and there's some others that did it, but you really highlighted the, the uh, what I could refer to as the Great Barrier Reef of Canada, i.e. Vancouver, everything that looks pretty, but everything that you touch is dangerous and deadly. And uh, you uncovered that. And as a result of that, I think, you know, you probably were one of the uh, primary precipitators um, for what we know as the uh, Cullen Commission on uh, money laundering uh, relative to the uh, uh, government. And then there was a uh, year-long process um, of a public inquiry with uh, lawyers and uh, politicians, uh, government officials, police managers, uh, intelligence uh, people, gaming experts, uh, all that were in there, and actually global experts on this stuff, and that took place over a year. Um, was in the paper every day. You watched some of that. And based on what you know, in terms of what that problem was and what you see, how congruent and effective um, uh, do you think that inquiry was in terms of educating Canadians on the threat and dealing with the uh, issues. I've made the argument uh, in the updated version of my book in the last chapter that the the commission, I do believe, had a lot of value in in confirming for the public that, uh, you know, as, as the 
Justice Austin Cullen, our commissioner, said, we can say that that uh, very sophisticated criminal networks are having a and the effect of tearing at the fabric of our society, the money laundering is a vast problem. Cullen said they couldn't, you know, put a figure on it. But facts came out of the commission that that I had, you know, I I had some idea of the scale. But when I came away from the, the commission, the my idea of the scale of uh, suspected criminal proceeds washing through BC government casinos just expanded. I would say almost exponentially to my estimations. I estimated something like two billion would be washed through uh, BC casinos going back to around 2009 up to 2018, and it's a lot higher than that. After uh, some data points that I that I read in the Cullen Commission that I just won't recount right now. Everyone can go in there and and study the report themselves, which seems to be almost forgotten by now. By the way. But mm-hmm. maybe it's forgotten because there's a feeling that while, well, while Cullen said, yeah, essentially, Sam Cooper and others' reports were right. There's a massive problem. Money monitoring was occurring. There was something like a, a turning of a blind eye, even though uh, in, in BC's political establishment, even though Cullen wouldn't come out and say that. Sorry, the respected uh, Commissioner Cullen. Um, I think a lot of people, myself included, that watched it very closely were were very disappointed that the commission did not look at the elite's highest level sort of uh, transnational crime networks and suspects and how they, as I've written, interconnected with Chinese state interests. At the end of the day, we can't get away from that because that the flow coming into BC, I'm saying. I'm, I'm asserting is underwritten by the Chinese state. And so BC, Canada will be able to do very little about it uh, in, unless they understand that. And, and if, if Canada understands that, that fact, then the, the types of countermeasures and, and legal amendments needed will be put in place. The, the other point is, you know, I just, for a concrete example, you know, as I write in the book, we're talking about tycoons from Hong Kong. Some of them are not with us anymore. Some are around 90 or more, but they had direct connectivity to uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the highest level of triads. Canada's government, uh, some in Canada's police and intelligence, knew and alleged this for decades, but the Cullen report didn't touch on that at all. And furthermore, I know that there was people uh, not even pointing to you, I know there's people that were there in those Hong Kong investigations that were ready to testify about those highest level or what I call upstream issues. And the the Cullen lawyers, you know, very smart people, never never led that evidence. And I question why. So I could go on about that just to summarize. I think there's some good recommendations like uh, the new Premier David Eby is moving forward on uh, wealth explanation orders. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the the level of legal amendment needed to really counter these flows is just way beyond anything that came, was suggested in the Cullen Report, I believe. Yeah, I, I would just add, I, I would echo uh, that uh, <clears throat> the issues of, uh, and, and I think any of uh, uh, Nathan's uh, listeners uh, would appreciate this, is that the dismissal of 
the issues of disclosure and uh, charter issues that are incongruent for allowing and facilitating international collaboration amongst police and even uh, domestic uh, police operations and that almost preclude almost exclusively, I would say, being able to tackle any of this stuff, i.e. Mm -hmm. being able to go after any of the higher level people. Like it, it's almost it's almost that the legal system provides, sadly, and, and I'm listening to myself talk and it kind of sounds a little demoralizing, but, but it basically licenses the top tier uh, players uh, to continue uh, going. And it was something that was, uh, as you alluded to, uh, dismissed, ignored, uh, and not really uh, discussed, which I think, while well, I give credit to uh, Mr. Eby, like you do uh, as well for the initiative, uh, I think anybody that's a policeman, you know, whether they're a constable on an investigative unit or, uh, you know, former manager like myself on it, um, I don't see much changing unless that changes and all the other changes, more money, more policing, all the other stuff really won't make uh, a huge difference until there's that uh, legislative reform uh, taken seriously. But uh, Nathan, you had something? Yeah, I was just going to kind of jump in there too and to, I guess, few points that both of you have made. Um, I would say that uh, what I think a lot of people need to realize too is the criminal side of things has been almost weaponized by the criminals. They know all the ins and outs. They've got all the money to drown things out in court, uh, drag things, and then all of a sudden, you know, things are getting tossed out, like super serious crimes are getting tossed out. Um, and that's why you see a lot of the provinces are now kind of trying to use provincial legislation to go after things such as um, civil forfeiture, for an example. So there's other ways that even um, within our own unit, I know we try to do things through a provincial lens if we can to avoid going through the criminal side because you just never know what you're going to get when it gets into a courtroom. Um, the laws I find right now uh, with a lot of the media reporting out there and there's, I don't know if we want to call it conspiracy theory, but a lot of the concern of government overreach into people's lives. But when you look at who writes these reports, and this is a question I was going to uh, get to with, um, with Sam was the effect on media. But when you look into who writes some of these articles and the background of those people, um, or the lawyers that are involved in some of these investigations, and you look at who they're connected to, um, it, it's there's some very shady stuff going on, and they're but they're getting all the airtime, right? So they're putting out articles saying the government's just trying to take every normal person's money, uh, trying to take all their cars and their homes. When that is not the case, the government doesn't like. At least I know in our service, we don't got the money to spy on people, so. Um, when, they, when people get concerned about that, it's like, well, where, where are these narratives coming from? And that was going to be one of the, the things I was going to ask Sam about, just kind of his opinion on um, maybe the, the weaponizing of media. And, you know, you might see, um, for example, if you start reporting on uh, China, well, maybe they won't call you out directly, but they'll have some articles go out saying that, you know, there's a lot of anti- um, Asian uh, uh, rhetoric out there or, you know, 
or maybe they do just outright will call you or somebody uh, racist. But do you do you kind of see that effect on media? Do you see people kind of a, um, in one respect afraid to write about the truth? And then uh, I guess and part of that question is, do you see the influence of these, uh, we'll say, bad actors on media? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, in a, a tackle in a couple of parts. First of all, you know, as journalists, rightly, we have the training that um, we need to be looking into government overreach and, you know, some of the, the best stories ever <laughs> thinking about, you know, uh, let's say, you know, Watergate or things of this nature mm-hmm. is when the government is the bad guys. So that that's our training. We need to be watching for that the overreach of the state. And so that's a, that, that's good. But in Canada, when you have a system, when, you know, at least from my point of view, when you understand that, as you say, when it, with, with, with regards to powerful crime networks, Canada is actually very underpowered and underlawed in comparison to our other, you know, uh, allies and, and democracies. So this is something I think that um, journalists should consider. And certainly, you know, if I, we can see from my reports that a lot of people are quoted, such as Calvin sometimes or others that say there's no such thing as a, as a money laundering or drug trafficking offense without a charter argument. And I've heard that directly from a, a veteran BC uh, crown prosecutor. Everyone knows that's the case. So is there a problem there in terms of, um, you know, is there any influence on on some of these stories, sure. Uh, I can just say, you know, as, as everyone in Western Canada knows, maybe across Canada, perhaps the best, uh, you know, uh, crime reporter uh, in in recent memory or Canadian history is Kim Bolin, my former colleague at the Vancouver Sun, mm-hmm. who has such deep networks uh, and such great reporting. And I just remember, I, I happened to be when I was at the province and she was at the Sun. Uh, I forget if we were covering the same trial, but a lawyer for, you know, a a very, let's just say a very powerful Fraser Valley people that know Vancouver will know where that is and how it's was deep in the drug trade. And, you know, the still is, but in around 2009, 10, 11, massive street gang wars, just rocking, rocking Metro Vancouver. I happened to be in the cafeteria taking a break from a trial and I heard a very well-connected lawyer talking with his junior associate while they were waiting for their soup. And they, they said something, well, can we get someone like Kim Boland to write about this? And, you know, I won't go further. Of course, they can never get Kim Boland to write about that. But that just shows you, and I know, that uh, lawyers that are deeply tied into this stuff do look to reach out to and, and, and influence people. Mm-hmm. I can say that because I just happened as a, a cub reporter to, to go, okay, I'm just going to just like, bump up against these guys at their table and, and ask them a little question. And the person then went on to suggest to me that he had a case of uh, how, uh, you know, habeas corpus was being abused against one of his clients in the Fraser Valley jail. So that does happen. And, you know, jumping to the, uh, the state's counter narratives against, you know, myself and others uh, that, that do some real digging into uh, this foreign interference activity. Sure, I write in the book that uh, 
I write in the updated edition of my book, Willful Blindness, that after the book came out, mm-hmm. I was alerted. It wasn't a duty to warn or anything like that, but I was uh, I was alerted by Canadian intelligence that very specific uh, Chinese intelligence uh, collection uh, tasking had been um, activated with regards to myself and people were looking, were asked to see if they could discover uh, my government sourcing, whether I was receiving support from any of the so-called Chinese Communist Party five poisons. These would be Falun Gong and, uh, you know, the interests of uh, uh, democracy, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I won't go through the whole laundry list of what they're trying to find on me, but I I was told, you know, if you had ever wanted to travel to China and Hong Kong, and I did, you should not go there anymore. You need to take, you know, these precautions. And furthermore, certainly very recent examples, you know, your listeners can can just go Google something called Found in Translation. It's a new substack put out by a anonymous Mandarin language researcher that that shows how, you know, shortly after some of my reporting on uh, CCP, United Front Work Department, political interference networks, uh, websites or business leaders or community leaders that that are implicated in in the intelligence that I have reported on very quickly after after will come out with with stories you know, accusing or, or pointing towards me. And I could go on to, mm-hmm. you know, talk about people in the political realm that that might, uh, or even in the media space, uh, and not just Mandarin language media, that that Chinese consulate officials may be, you know, uh, trying to activate. But maybe that's a future conversation. I think I, it, it is true that they're in media, uh, the, the danger of manipulation from both criminal legal and state actors is not just something I'm, I'm observing from my experience. It's something that I have eyes on uh, intelligence documentation and, and probably here's a tip, you know, this is something I may look more into myself in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, Calvin, did you have something there? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll just uh, kind of make a comment knowing the times uh, winding down and respecting that more of a comment than the uh, question. And then I'll turn it over to you, uh, Nathan is, I, I think I, you know, having spent 33 years in uh, policing and uh, the last portion of it, dealing with many of these issues that uh, Sam's talking about in terms of transnational organized crime, um, money laundering, foreign uh, threat actors, you know, that possibly uh, state facilitated uh, or supported, um, you know, the experience, you know, that Sam uh, communicated in his book in terms of willful blindness does transcend into, um, you know, not only government, but I would say it, it cascades into some of the leadership. Um, you know, and I kind of alluded to that, you know, we have a, a lot of, uh, Chamberlain's, uh, versus Churchill's, uh, currently in terms of the mentality. And I hope that changes, you know, with more awareness. And I think that awareness is what I kind of wanted to a- end up on Sam is, we had uh, our uh, associate Nick uh, McKenzie on uh, on uh, the podcast uh, recording the other day, which will come out, um, and we talked at the end of it about the importance in terms of uh, talking about that relationship between uh, police and media, which is quite often um, uh, strained at times, 
But what I've learned uh, and what I've experienced, you know, in terms of interactivity with yourself and Nick and others, and my experience working over in Europe this last summer and working with some intelligence uh, entities and investigative journalists and others, is the importance to, you know, more than ever to uh, work with uh, investigative journalists like yourself, where we share the same values for most parts uh, in terms of your enemy is. Uh, our enemy, which makes us friends. And I, I said that to Nick yesterday. And I just really encourage, uh, you know, any of the uh, listeners, um, you know, to not, you know, obviously they have to respect those legal parameters in terms of uh, uh, not sharing uh, sensitive uh, information, but that doesn't preclude having uh, more generalized conversations and exploring ways that they can help the media and the media can help uh, the police uh, put a spotlight on these issues because I think with the current legal framework we have, probably the media is probably doing just as effective, if not even more of an effective job in terms of mitigating this threat to uh, Canadians. And I, I just wanted to end uh, saying thanks very much for your service, particularly exposing yourself and others uh, in your network to uh, risk. And I'll uh, uh, just want to say thanks. And I, I really feel our friendship, uh, you know, a degree of honor in terms of uh, uh, having you on the uh, podcast today and uh, obviously having a friendship with you. So I'll turn it over to uh, Nathan for his comments. Yeah, Sam, I know uh, we're right uh, to the wire here. Uh, how can people best follow your work? So the book Willful Blindness is out there. Um, any other platforms to follow you? Yeah, uh, you can just follow me on, on Twitter at at Scooper Cooper, and uh, I'm uh, reporting at uh, in the National Investigations Unit at Global News. And you know, to what Calvin said, yeah, there's a there can be so much from journalists that understand that uh, that police and intelligence is just just part of Canadian society, or or these other uh, these other countries you talked about, Nick, in Australia. And there are times when the media has to hold. Uh, do our part to hold the government and police and intelligence to account. Certainly there can be abuses, mm -hmm. but uh, by, by us doing those stories and also doing the stories though, where we need to support Canadian society through laws and support of police and intelligence, there, that balance is there. And that's the relationship that, uh, that I think that a, a mature level of reporting calls for. Great. Well, it's great to meet you. And um, we'll definitely have to talk in the future. So thank you for being on and uh, part of the whole series. And um, yeah, uh, we'll look to have you back. Thank you both very much. Take care.